is Founders Talk, an interview podcast hosted by me, Adam Stachowiak. We profile founders building businesses online as well as offline. And if you found this show on iTunes, we're also on the web at 5x5.tv slash Founders Talk. If you're on Twitter, follow Founders Talk and meet Adam Stack. Today's guest is Neil Robertson, founder and CEO of Trada. Enjoy the show. I'm here with Neil Robertson, founder and CEO of Trada. Neil, how are you today, bud? Uh, I'm great, man, Adam. Great to talk to you. So, Neil, I, I know that you've got quite a history like most founders that come on this show, and, and it's always fun to dig deep into that story. So do me a favor and give the audience a listen of, of kind of some of your background and a bit about who you are. Sure. Um, I actually started my first software company when I was 14 years old out of my um, high school uh, bedroom. Uh, this is back in the early days where there's no such thing as really as the internet. I was building bulletin board software for Apple IIEs. Uh, I went to school and thought that what I wanted to do was to be a programmer. Uh, I went to MIT and got a computer science degree. And sort of, um, I was living in California and I went to school, of course, in Boston and MIT uh, and decided that I wanted to stay there for the summers. I really liked the city and got this job working at one of what was ended up being the first internet software startup company. It's a company called NetGenesis. And it was a very early startup, uh, got very active uh, in building software there. And along the way, met some pretty phenomenal people, um, one of whom was Brad Feld who is a venture partner at what was SoftBank and then Mobius and now the founder group. Uh, if you're uh, reading about VCs online, uh, his name pops up usually in the top three or four people that everybody talks about in terms of having a great presence online. And really, I started to learn that I wanted to build companies and not just build software. Um, I ended up moving to Colorado to start my first company in 1998. Uh, built that company, um, sold it, right time, right place, great internet story, went to go work for a few, <clears throat> excuse me, a few venture capital firms, uh, then built another company, um, wrong idea, wrong time, great crater in the ground, uh, learned a lot of lessons about that, uh, went off and built some built a business in Iceland uh, in Reykjavik and then came back to uh, start Trotta. Along the way, have uh, worked uh, oh, geez, I helped start about five companies, uh, angel invested in maybe 10, opened uh, and closed a couple of bars and restaurants, uh, a whole kind of cacophony of stuff. Um, I'm uh, pretty uh, hard to keep my feet on the ground. So I just uh, do a lot of interesting things, I think. Sounds like you've been busy, busy as heck for the past few years. So I guess past uh, 15, maybe 20 years now. Yeah, I moved to Colorado in uh, about 12 years ago. So yeah, probably 15 years I've been going at it pretty strong. I should probably take a break one of these days. And you said that you prefer to build companies versus software. What what was it that made you feel that way? Because I know a lot of entrepreneurs that kind of get stuck in this, uh, what kind of equipment do I have to have? What kind of software should I build things with? You know, How can I actually build this company? They start to work on these little bits and bites versus the bigger picture. And you said that you'd rather build companies. That's more like a bigger picture. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, I'm, I'm a dyed-in-the-wool technologist at the end of the day, and I still, you know, write a little code when I have a chance. In the beginning of the company here, I wrote some of the code, which I'm sure they've 
um, done a good job of getting rid of in the last couple of years when they've had a chance. But uh, I think, you know, a lot of people build technology. It's called software for themselves. It's sort of a bit of an indulgence. They enjoy tinkering. Some people build software for other people in the tech community, uh, whether it's, you know, open source projects or they build things to kind of, you know, show off their technical prowess. It's sort of the, you know, the, um, the fast and the furious drag racing of, of tech. And then some people build software because they really want people to um, get value out of it. And I realized very early on in my career that um, building as an activity for me was not a private experience. It was a very public experience. And that the most impactful way that I could, or the impactful thing I could learn was how to build a company to take an idea that I had and either built or had a lot of influence over and distribute it very broadly. And that when I reflected back on the fact that I had built something, that that would make me the happiest rather than I would personally be playing something with something on my laptop I liked or I would have the reverence of some people I respected in the tech community. Uh, And I think Trata is a great example of that. We'll get to Trata hopefully in a little bit here in terms of taking something really, really broad in its scope. Now, let's get a little closer to starting to talk about Trata. So you moved to – you accidentally fell into Boulder, Colorado. What was that experience like and how did you fall in love with that beautiful city? <laughs> well, um, I will um, – so I was living in Boston at the time. I was 22 years old. Uh, I was really into the bar and the club scene there. I was really into music. I was working kind of sort of somewhat casually at this uh, software company trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And got involved in uh, building this business, and we ended up deciding to put it out here. I came to Colorado extremely begrudgingly. Um, I grew up in California, and so Colorado and many of the states near it were were those annoying things you had to fly over to get home. And uh, I never in a million years thought I would end up here. And uh, I remember, and you know, you can edit this part out if you want, but uh, I remember being here for uh, you know about two weeks, and like literally calling my mother, like sobbing, like I'm so unhappy to be here. I don't know what I'm doing. But I uh, I came out and I sacked up and was really enjoying the work that I was doing. And then I sort of looked around about six weeks into it and said, um, let me go be as bolder as I can be. And I started mountain biking and rock climbing and just being outside all the, town, all the time. And I went, ah, oh, I get it. And uh, I've never really looked back from then. And I think uh, Boulder will be uh, my home for the rest of my life. Yeah, everybody I know that has been to or loves Boulder or lives there, um, they always like – love it the most because of the outdoorsness or the the things that you do there, like just going for a hike in the morning. It's so, I guess, I don't know. You tell me what's, what's like, what's like going uh, for a hike in the morning in, in the mountains there. Well, I mean, there's, there's a few things. Uh, I'm actually not that outdoorsy of a person just because I work all the time. So I got zero days of skiing in this year, which is like completely embarrassing to admit. Um, people wear it as a badge and I have a badge that says zero on it. Oh, so, boy. <laughs> um, yeah, it's tragic. But uh, there's a place, for example, so Bill Quinn, who runs our marketing group, he and I go up to this trail called Potasso Preserve and it's like the perfect – a sort of slope and length of hiking trail. And rather than sitting in a conference room for a meeting, you drive five minutes and then you go hike around this, uh, you go hike around this trail. And it's unbelievable how much more sort of intimate the conversation gets and the ideas flow and things when you're just out, you know, there's deer running around and things like that. I don't mean to make it sound as bucolic as as that, but it really is like that. I, I will point out though, that the thing that I love about Boulder, which keeps me here is, and you hear this a lot when people describe it, is an insanely um, sort of uh, tight and a self-serving in a good way community. Everybody here is very willing to meet with each other, help with each other. 
Uh, I mean, if I look at my calendar every week, I probably have six to 10 meetings a week that are meeting with other entrepreneurs, either in the interest of Trata or to help them with a tech stars thing they're doing or an idea. And it's what everybody here does. I think it's what the Valley Palo Alto used to be like 10, 15 years ago and has a little bit uh, lost that luster. And it's here in Boulder. I, I hear some good things and some bad things about the West Coast and that it's just crazy out there and i hear a lot of good things about boulders so that's that's awesome i would hope to co- go there one day i know that uh, there's lots of fun stuff up there and i've been meaning to at least make a trip there to to at least ski you know at least ski yeah it's never really hard to get people out here uh, in the winter um there actually is an awesome event uh, boulder startup week that's happening um may 18th 19th and 20th i don't know uh, when this will go out and uh, it's getting bigger and bigger every year people fly in and there's events at every startup uh, we're hosting uh, one of the opening events here in downtown Boulder so uh, maybe you'll uh, find your way out here I would love to so we're probably getting a little closer to talking about uh, the cream of the crop for this call which is Trata it's this this startup you started up about what about two years ago now and you've been in stealth mode for the first year and you sort of just have been merging out the past six months uh, yeah, we're about two and a half years old, and we stayed in stealth mode for 18 months, um, and we just celebrated on March 18th our one-year public anniversary. So we kind of took the lid off of it and showed the world what we were doing. So what what exactly is Trata then? So Trata is the world's first crowdsourced paid search marketplace. What that means is rather than try to go and work with Google, Yahoo, and Bing to put your ads on their search engines, which is what's called paid search or pay-per-click marketing or search engine marketing, there's lots of words for the same thing. Rather than go try to figure that out yourself, if you're a small and medium-sized business, you come to us and we essentially work with you to put your campaign into a market where we have almost 2,000 paid search experts that come and work on your campaign for you. Uh, The key there is that rather than try to match you with one expert, sort of like find you a a freelancer, if you will, we let the market determine how many experts should work on your campaign. And we actually use a crowdsourcing methodology or wisdom of the crowds methodology where we get those experts to both collaborate and compete on your campaign. And the reason that that is a good idea and has worked well is that the way that paid search works is You have to think of every single search term that someone would type into Google that you want to put your ad next to when the results come up. And then you have to figure out what page on your website that should go to and what the ad should say and how much per click you're willing to spend on that. And if you think about a small and medium-sized business, like say a small retailer that's selling parts for satellite radios, there's thousands or thousands or tens of thousands of different search terms that someone might type in that they need to put their ads next to. That's very hard and time-consuming to do. It's also very hard to do as an individual, no matter how good you are at paid search. The crowd model where you get a bunch of brains thinking about this, looking at a website, thinking, what would I type in to go find products on this website? Um, If you can kind of organize it and coalesce it all together into one good campaign, which is what we do, is a very powerful mechanism to get um, much more sophisticated campaigns for these small and medium-sized businesses than they can get anywhere else. The last thing that's really important is that our crowdsourced model uh, is one where people only get paid based on performance. So the advertiser specifies what they're willing to pay per click and or what they're willing to pay, for example, when they get a sale. And the experts make money by doing better than that. So they sort of, if they can beat the numbers, they get the difference. So we create an incentive system in our market where everybody ends up getting what they want. And um, that's what we built. And it's uh, growing very, very quickly. Um, and uh, about six, seven months ago, uh, Google Ventures made an investment in us. 
which we thought was a pretty great testament um, to the model and how unique it was. And we're having a heck of a lot of fun uh, building the company. So you must have taken a lot of time to think through the model and think through how to um, incentivize the the crowdsourcing, uh, I guess, staff or what are these people called that that uh, kind of participate in, and do the marketing for these companies? Well, we call them optimizers, which is a very specific try to word. How did you build this this monster? I mean, what were the, some of the first challenges you faced in trying to even uh, think through the incentive, uh, how to incentivize people, and how to get them excited, and how to actually help them perform very well for the companies and, and do this model that you just described? Sure. So it's funny. Um, I started the company with uh, five of the people that I had worked with at the last I built. It was my third official venture back company. And I uh, got the same team that had been working with me for a while. And we went and we sat in a conference room before we ever funded the company. And, and we basically were, said, you know, oh, this is easy. This takes about two weeks. <laughs> right. And, uh, you know, as always, the bravado of the, um, the ignorant. Right. So, um, what we learn and continue to learn is that really what crowdsourcing businesses are, whether you're 99 Designs or Demand Media or U-Test or Trata, you name it, there's a lot of them. Um, what you're really mastering as a business is the dynamic of human behavior and, as you said, of incentive. And that is not something that you can draw on a whiteboard, sketch out and um, – you know, um, codify into software. It is a living, breathing organism that changes with the type of people that are involved, how many people are involved, um, the types of activity, uh, if it's a hobby, if people make money at it. Um, if you read any of the, um, the literature, which I'm sure you have on gamification or we call it crowd mechanics, people are multiply, are, are motivated by different uh, things, whether it's money or reputation, leaderboards, incentives, achievements, badges, et cetera. There's all sorts of stuff like that. Um, it's very, very hard to get right. Um, along the way, about a year ago, I realized that we were probably not the only people solving this problem. And I pulled together a group, which is now the official trade group of the crowdsourcing industry, official, I say self-appointed official, trade group of the crowdsourcing industry called the Crowdsortium. And the original, the original idea was like, hey, we must be all solving this problem. We should probably talk to each other. And that's exactly what we do. And we actually have about 200 members in the Crowdsortium now and are actually throwing an event uh, uh, next week uh, in Mountain View at Google, basically bringing all the minds together in the crowdsourcing business to essentially compare notes on what we've learned, um, because we're inventing a lot of new science here. I, I think, uh, this is kind of really wild how you can look at the, the science of motivation and you kind of dive into this, uh, this term crowd mechanics. And I think it's just really wild. I, I read in an article that you wrote, um, where you said that, uh, people act differently when money is included in the incentive system and, it's not always that they work better or that they even work more poorly. How, how much have you had to investigate into, I guess, the mind of a human being and how we interact and how we communicate and how we want to collaborate and how we approach problems like this to make what Trata does uh, work efficiently like it does? Sure. Well, so I, we, we as a company um, learn a lot constantly. We talk to our marketplace. We tinker with our crowd mechanics. The, the good news is there's actually a huge amount of emerging literature on this subject. Uh, there's a great book by Daniel Pink called Drive. Of course, the original crowdsourcing book by Jeff Howe and James Sirwicki's Wisdom of the Crowds. 
But one of the things that's really interesting is there's a new field of economics called behavioral economics that um, is um, got people now at the Berkman Center at Harvard, at Stanford, at NYU, MIT, et cetera. And we actively, when we built the consortium, recruited academics doing work on the subject. And um, so there's just this unbelievable inflow of both empirical and subjective data coming from both industry and from, from academia at the same time about what is ironically a very new science about, you know, quantification of human motivation. Um, so um, I think we were in the right place at the right time with uh, eyes and ears wide open and, and, and sort of willingness to learn and make mistakes. Um, but uh, I think in the next five years, um, people will have a lot better solid idea of the right way to approach a lot of these problems. I mean, it's no different in the in, uh, than, for example, Foursquare or Scavenger in terms of how they use game mechanics in their check-in system. You're just dealing with something that's more of a work process than it is a sort of social activity. So what's the story with Google Ventures? How do you get the attention of a billion-dollar tier one firm like that to back Trotta? Sure. So um, maybe as a little bit of a backdrop, because I took kind of a different approach when I raised money this time uh, with Trotta. So I've raised in my life $52 million. I've raised uh, from, I don't know, eight different funds um, in all sorts of different ways. And I just said when I was going to do it this time, I'm doing this totally differently. So I knew Rich Miner, the partner of Google Ventures, because I helped start another business, uh, which started in Boston and now is in San Francisco, a business called BigLink. Uh, that's in the affiliate space that's actually doing phenomenally well. And Google Ventures and first round, uh, Josh Kopelman had invested in that business. And I was on the board um, and I got to know Rich. And he always, I was like, you know, Google Ventures that would clearly make make sense. Um, we always had this incredible hubris about Trada, I think, um, from the beginning. And I mean that not in a bad way. I mean that in a good way. We were very aware that we were onto something after some early, early research. And we took that kind of uh, approach to how we hired and kind of who we led into the club. We took that approach to who we um, got money from. I only showed this deal to one firm, which is Foundry Group, who I've worked with in every single deal. Partner negotiated the, um, you know, the pre-money valuation, which is the worst way to do it unless you have a great relationship with someone. And then when we went to go raise money to get your question about Google Ventures, I literally showed the deal to four people. One of them couldn't invest. They had invested in something else in the space recently. I showed it to Google Ventures. I showed it to one other firm that I had been talking to. And then one Sandhill firm. And um, I ran a very tight and organized process. And I, I remember I, I just basically said, you know, screw this. I'm going to do this however I want. And I went to the Sandhill firm and I walked in, I think I was wearing flip flops and a t-shirt with a skull on it. And I had just come from Vegas and <laughs> I was not feeling very well. And I was like, here's the deal. I've already got my money. If you want to put money in, off you go. And, um, I just ran a kind of a, a high, high risk, high reward process. But I had had the, I had the backing of Foundry Group that said they would already do the deal, and I knew I could get a fair valuation. So clearly, Google Ventures was our target. I didn't, I don't play other firms as stocking horses. I have try to have more integrity about that. I would sincerely have considered the ones that put term sheets down. But uh, they were our target the whole time, and it was a little bit tough to thread the needle, given, of course, their desire to not seem like they were playing favorites in the ecosystem, which I think has been not an issue at all since they invested in us. Um, but it was a very stressful few weeks going from partner approval to term sheet to deal, fending everybody else off because I really, really wanted them in the deal. 
What's uh, it's really interesting that uh, you know you can always go into a situation as with the best negotiating cards. I guess is uh, is maybe the way to say it when you're not really that concerned about how it will turn out because you have. I guess you can play a little closer to your chest and not really worry about the outcome. So in that case, it could actually play in your favor. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's always very delicate walking into any scenario where, you know, you are trying to create the sense of urgency and you're trying to sort of create leverage and you may have a little bit of it. But in the end, the other player really doesn't care if they do your deal or not. I mean, maybe they do. Right. So it's a little <laughs> hard to work into, a, you know, walk into a billion dollar, you know, tier one firm and be like, yeah, I don't care if you do my deal or not. Because um, they kind of don't like that, right? They want you to say, like, they really want you to do my deal. Um, and so you have to be careful. And a lot of it is I relied on some – I knew a lot of the partners that I was dealing with, and they would understand that I wasn't doing it because I was being flippant. Um, but, yeah, it was a fun it was a fun way to do it. And we also ran the process very, very quickly, um, which uh, nowadays with the market so frothy, you can do that. We, we just raised money for Big Link from uh, Emergence. Um, great guys there, Kevin Spain, uh, Gordon Ritter. And um, that we did the deal with them in two weeks, I think. Soup to nuts. Wow, yeah. I think it's pretty amazing how you mentioned too that you've you've raised fifty two million dollars in your lifetime. That's that's amazing. Like you must just. Uh, I guess the next question I would have for you is when are you writing the book about how to raise money? <laughs> uh, when I figure out how to do it. <laughs> I, I uh, Yeah, I mean, fortunately, I've raised 52 and I've made more than that. I mean, that would be the appropriate question to ask, right? So how much have you actually made from that? Um, okay, sure. So how much have you actually earned from $52 million from funding? <laughs> well, uh, it depends on when you count the uh, exit at uh, service metrics. We sold for uh, $280 and it was worth about a billion um, in about 22 months after we started it. So... I'm uh, I'm well ahead on the numbers, but uh, um, you're in the black. I'm 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 in the the dark bold black. Uh, you know it's so funny. Every deal is so situational. I just raised uh, what my best friend in Boston, uh, a guy named Matt Cutler. I just we I just helped him kind of tweak his his company's idea, and we just raised money. We meaning he did most of the work, and um, I gave him moral support. Um, but we just raised money from, geez, a whole bunch of people, uh, Google Ventures, CRV, General Catalyst, et cetera. He hasn't really announced it um, yet, but it's just an, a great August group. And we did that one fast, too, in about three months. And I think, you know, it's like it's like all things. Once you sort of get into the flow and people know about you and you have some good outcomes in the deals, things sort of pick up. I I, I think I've probably forgotten a little bit what it's like to be the first guy that sh- you know showed up to his first venture meeting. Actually, uh, my favorite personal stories um, is I went to my first venture capital meeting ever in San Francisco when I was 22 years old, and uh, I had no idea what I was doing, and I like had a nose ring in, and I took it out the night before in the hotel with a pair of scissors because I was embarrassed to walk into a venture capital meeting with a nose ring in, and I walked <laughs> up to the door and I had like slacks on, but the only wallet that I had was like a wallet chain. Remember that was cool for about five minutes in yeah. uh, the end of the 90s, and. Uh, I like didn't know what to do, so I took it off and I put it in my pocket. So I had like a whole pocket full of chain and my wallet, and I walked in, and I had this meeting. It was at IDG Ventures, Pat Keneally, who was one of the best VCs I've ever met in my life. Um, and uh, I walked in, and I went to this whole meeting, and there's one point in the meeting where uh, the, the my partner, Tom Higley, the CEO, uh, left the room to go to the bathroom, I think, and Pat Keneally – uh, looked over at me and said, hey, can you give me the cap table? I had no idea what a cap table was. I'd never heard of it before. And for those that don't know 
but they're listing the donuts capitalization table. It's basically who owns what in the company. Um, so, you know, everybody starts not knowing what it is. But I, there was a stack of about 400 pages of financials. I would have never in my life gone through a stack of financials so slowly, looking for something that had big bright red letters that said cap table on it, hoping that Tom would come back from the bathroom um, <laughs> faster than it would take me to get to the stack. And he did not, and I had to basically push the stack over to Pat and say, I have no idea. How did that work out for you? Sometimes admitting that you have no ideas is in your favor. How did that work out for you? Uh, they invested and we made them a uh, a ton of money. <laughs> so, so it worked out then. It did work out. Yeah, um, yeah. There's a. I think there's a lot of power in telling someone I don't know the answer to that, or I've never heard of that before. Why don't you tell me? I think that's a funny thing that a lot of people forget. And entrepreneurship is. Uh, way more about um, listening and being humble than it is about trying to preach. I think a lot of entrepreneurs I know that are like, I guess what we call true entrepreneurs, they don't really judge you. They're like, there, there's no prejudice. There's no, you know, there's nothing like that whatsoever. They're like, you don't know what the answer is to that. No big deal. I'll help you. They're very, um, you know, led or be led kind of people that they just kind of roll with the flow. And if you don't know the answer to that, no big deal. Let me show you how to work it out. Or this is the kind of people I speak with. Let me connect you there. They're just really humble, helpful people, from at least from my experience. I think that is true, and from my experience too. One of my, um, maybe if I'm allowed one rant per uh, per interview, one of my uh, really frustrates me now. And I think some of this is a sort of like uh, the valley culture. Uh, I mean, it's one of the things where all the good stuff comes with some bad stuff too. Is I think there's a whole breed of people that I call entrepreneurs, people that. When you say, like, what do you want to be? What do you want to do? They say, I want to be an entrepreneur. And what they mean by that is I want to lead the entrepreneur lifestyle. I want to have really cool offices and I want to go to a lot of coffee shops and I want to blog about things. And I'm the, I'm the CEO of my blog, um, that kind of thing. Um, and I am really sensitive to that because I think entrepreneurs have the best chance of success. When you ask them what it is they want to do with their time, there's always a direct correlation between um, their desire to be an entrepreneur and their, their sort of correlation in the head that that means I want to create value. I want to help someone. I want to help someone get better. And I think that um, a lot of what's going on and with sort of the kind of quote unquote valley culture right now, a lot of money coming in, you know, not a lot of business plans being vetted very deeply, et cetera. And it's not necessarily a bad thing, but again, it has some bad side effects uh, is that it is training a lot of people around the edges to become entrepreneurs in the wrong way. It's a, my sort of analogy is like very few people show up and say, like when you say, what do you want to do with your life? They say, I want to be a rock star, right? Most, right. and most people that really end up rock stars show up and say, I love music. Right. And then that love of music translates into them realizing that they can do that on a grand scale. I think entrepreneurship is very, very similar. And it just, it bugs me, I guess, when people, because I meet a lot of people um, for breakfast and things like that, when they literally all they want is the entrepreneurial lifestyle, but they don't really want what you get. The hard work required. The hard work and like the reason you do it, right? I mean, right. it's like having kids because you want someone to get you a beer from the fridge, right? It's like, no, you have kids because you love having kids, right? Or you want to grow, you don't want to have a child or something. Absolutely. I, I totally agree. So let's um, let's talk about the stealth mode in general. I know you wrote a couple articles on this and you've talked about it on your blog before, but um, I, as I understand it, you said you were in a stealth mode with Trata for 18 months. 
Uh, but before we dive into that, what exactly is stealth mode? Uh, there was actually a great – it's funny. If you look at all of our Google Analytics traffic, the most highly – or the second most highly trafficked keyword is, is stealth mode. So we still get a lot of interest in this topic. Um, we created, it generated a lot of debate um, between people. I very much believe that stealth mode is um, – can be a lot of different things. Our approach was that stealth mode was about actively talking to a lot of people about our product, but not publicly going to market with what we're doing. I do not believe, generally speaking, in like blog first, raise money second. I don't think that that is the right approach to things. We um, had a huge amount of people externally involved in our company. We actually um, set up a whole very unique advisor program and a sort of user engagement program to try to figure out um, what people liked and didn't like in the product. We had over 47 paid search experts come in and work with us over the first uh, four months of the business to give us feedback on what we were building. So when I say stealth, I'm not saying it was my five, you know, my five person team in a room coming out 18 months later and saying, this is what we do. I I just don't believe in that either. The thing that we did is we just decided not to, um, we decided not to, uh, uh, sorry, someone was walking through. We decided not to uh, be public. I get so easily distracted. We decided not to be public about what we were doing. Um, and the reason that we did that is that once you start being public, there's a huge amount of additional things you have to do. You have to respond to emails. You have to take press inquiries. You have to write blog posts. You have to do all this kind of stuff. And we just didn't want to spend our time on that. We wanted to spend our time building the best product we could. So our attitude about stealth mode was engage, 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 but engage in a very quiet and deliberate way and build the product to a point where, where it would test public scrutiny. And then essentially the infrastructure of the company was um, – you were able to build the infrastructure of that company enough that you could handle the external requests and inquiries and phone calls. I mean, we we laughed about this. We didn't even have a phone number for the business that you could call until I think two days before our launch. I like what you say too about engagement because I think I think you said it best in your article when you become the minute you become external about what you're doing in your business. You, you suddenly have this brand new department you have to um, educate and they have to work and engage with the, the community. The community has questions and if you don't react properly to that community reaction, then you could be looked at like a bad company and all the work you've been doing in stealth mode, whether it's a good product or not, could be could be bad because if you get a bad name with the community, then you're not going to be doing very well. Yeah, I mean, again, with all with all things, it's it's very contextual. Um, and if you are a consumer product, uh, I would maybe argue a different approach. Um, in the the business that I'm building in Boston with my friend Matt is a consumer product, and so we talk a lot about how public we want to be about what we're doing. Um, uh, versus, you know, an enterprise software company where you can sit there and blog all day long, and there's a relatively limited world that's going to know about you. Um, but I do think it's important to pick and choose the battles you fight when you're starting a company. And every commitment to an activity is a battle, whether it's updating a blog or, or taking customer support calls or trying to process a credit card rather than just give something to someone for free for a while. Um, you know, there is nothing you add into the infrastructure of your business that doesn't take you know, time and attention to, uh, to tend. And you have to just be very careful about those things. You know, when you're in stealth mode and you're approaching the moments that you're coming out, besides getting a phone number and adding it to your website, what are some of the things that uh, you can do properly when coming out of stealth mode and actually engaging not only the community but also the press and, and various blogs that can help propel you and give you, uh, you know, shine a spotlight on you? What are some of the things you could do coming out of stealth mode that can really help your company grow? 
Sure. So I think, again, it depends if you've got a consumer product versus like a B2B product, uh, et cetera. So in our case, we were selling a B2B product. Uh, a lot of what we what matters in a B2B um, company, especially one selling to a small and medium-sized businesses, is what are effective, uh, cost-effective ways to do lead generation. So we found that we could actually try some lead generation. Of course, we used uh, Trotter for paid search, our own business for paid search, but we also did things on Facebook and LinkedIn and and some other things. Uh, we, we bought some ads on TechCrunch um, that we could try those things in a somewhat innocuous way that they wouldn't drive a huge amount of attention to us uh, and get enough data that we knew when we went public kind of what what curves to accelerate into around the racetrack, if you will. And um, we did. So we actually ran a lot of performance-based advertising campaigns before we were ever out of stealth mode. Um, so to me, it's not a binary decision. Like you turn the lights on one day and all of a sudden you start doing all these activities. There's a lot of things you can do. We just, we didn't release, we didn't solicit press. We didn't write blogs. We didn't do things that would attract a lot of attention to ourselves. Um, that would attract a lot of, I, I would say maybe, um, tastemakers and sort of mavens to come and opine on things. We did a lot of, we did a lot of things where we just kind of tested the market. Uh, and that actually was a very, very valuable set of exercises so that when we um, actually launched, we had three months of data underneath our belt to figure out kind of what to uh, invest in. You know, I, I'm going to ask a question that I think the, the listeners are probably thinking about now. It kind of veers in a diff- different subject, but it goes back to the core of what you're doing with Trata, which is um, a very well-written article that you wrote called Does Crowdsourcing Commoditize Freelance Expertise? And I know that you mentioned 99designs, and that's one of the – more well-known um, crowdsourcing type of uh, websites or businesses that have propped up. But that actually came from uh, a forum, like uh, SitePoint evolved a very well-carved-out forum thread or forum section into a whole business, which is really, really, really wild. And I hope to have uh, Matt Miskovich on the, on the podcast again at some point. But, you know, I, I want to dive into this because – I think crowdsourcing can do this, but you seem to have a lot of good points on how it does actually help and and give it direct value. So what are some of the thoughts you shared in this article about crowdsourcing and how some might say that it commoditizes the freelance expertise and or even um, people that come onto your company just for uh, consulting and such? Sure. Um, It's a fascinating conversation to me and one that I only dipped my toe into with that article. you know, I I should say as context, when it comes to uh, work, and I know that, that not all crowdsourcing is work, so let's sort of talk about just the work section of it. You know, people making awesome videos on YouTube for for fun, but, you know, that's another kind of, kind of crowdsourcing. Yeah. But uh, it's great. It's just, I actually heard a business pitch on that recently. Okay. Uh, well, maybe people are blurring them together. But um, so when it comes down to doing doing real work for pay, I very much um, believe in a meritocracy, and the closest thing, closest model that I've ever found to a meritocracy. And so, uh, you know, I got this whole thread of meritocracy because of when I started building companies. So, coming out of school in 1996, building um, internet uh, technology and software at the beginning of the internet revolution, where it didn't matter how old you were, what gender you were, where you came from in the world, the smartest person got the most attention. It was an incredibly liberating and eternal stamp that's sort of imprinted on my view of how work should be. Um, so that's kind of where I get my view of meritocracy. I think the best model for meritocracy that I can think of is a market, right? Is to let markets drive uh, pricing, to let markets drive winners and losers. Um, it's 
both beautiful and it's also um, brutal. And I think a lot of people uh, don't necessarily like the brutal side of markets. Markets don't always work very well. You learn a lot about them. They have to change over time and be regulated to work really well. Not a total sort of free market thinker. So this is to say, you know, going back to the question of crowdsourcing commoditized expertise, the question is like, what is, what is the real market for expertise, right? Um, I think, and this is going down a longer tangent, I think the United States um, still lives in somewhat of a protected uh, halo of knowledge workers, which is sort of the last highly paid um, part of our economy that I think um, increasing globalization, some to do with the crowdsourcing, others to do with just sort of uh, general access to people like through Odesk and Elance and things like that is going to actually remove a lot of the barriers and a lot of the sort of uh, sort of protectionism that's happened around our um, uh, our uh, knowledge worker economy is going to go away very quickly. And that means that people that were very used to making $80 an hour doing something because they had essentially no competition are now going to be put in competition with a lot broad, broader set of people. It's going to happen no matter what, and I think crowdsourcing is is a well-timed um, activity because what it does is actually creates a very understandable performance-based labor market. So um, what happens is people that were uh, freelancing for a while, they're very scared that the prices are going to go down, but also what they don't really realize is that a lot of what it takes to be a freelancer, especially in the United States, is a lot of selling, marketing, and servicing of the customer. We're a very service-oriented economy. And so a lot of times, like a graphic designer or someone doing paid search, they're spending 40, 50, 60% of their time not actually doing the thing they love, which is making you know, logos or pamphlets or, or great design work or, or um, building out you know, paid search campaigns, performance-based advertising. When you actually sort of do all the math around that, you realize that if you just spend all of your time doing freelancing in a crowdsourcing market, you give up some of the protection around your hourly wage, but in return, what you get is access to a huge amount more work. That if you're actually good at what you do and you spend time on those things, as opposed to spending time on servicing and selling and marketing customers, the actually the actual hourly rates that you can see go almost back to up to, if not greater, than what you could get if you were working um, alone. Now, I can see that actually, because there's a lot of times that people actually spend just just on you know talking and communicating and collaborating and not actually doing the the task itself when if they could just jump into a task and know all the parameters know all the specs or at least the desires of the of the client or the customer they can get the work right away and there's no time spent on making a phone call or deciding if or if not they got the proposal or they're going to go over with it or they they think the estimate is uh worth it or you know portraying value all these things kind of get removed in this kind of scenario. That's exactly right. And um, so, for example, in Trata, our, uh, our top optimizers make uh, over $60,000 a year. We actually have people that work equivalently of full-time in Trata now. And you know, a lot of them are freelancers before. They get one credit card billing question or issue from a customer. They can spend half their day on the phone with Amex or whatever processing company and do no paid search if they were doing it themselves directly with a the customer. They don't ever deal with that in Trata. They can spend those four hours going and working on a brand new campaign that just came into the system, building out a good campaign that will continue to earn for them because of the way that you know every campaign you work on continues to earn for you in Trata, and um, you know essentially increasing their their monthly uh, their monthly earnings. It's it's just a much better uh, for people that really like the work of paid search. It's a much better way to spend your time. Some people love servicing customers. And there's markets for that, like LiveOps is a great example. If you're really into customer support and service, you should jump in and become a LiveOps agent. Maybe that's your calling, 
right? And they have people that make $100,000 a year in lineups. I'm sure you actually see some of the cost of this because you you are immersed in it, it's your business. Um, be honest and give maybe a, just a couple points of the cons of this kind of scenario where you're crowdsourcing. What are some of the cons of crowdsourcing? Um, I don't think there's necessarily any cons of crowdsourcing. I mean, it's my job to say that, but um, I think what they're I think people don't yet know how to approach crowdsourcing um, very well. So a lot of people show up on our doorstep and they assume or want the crowd to basically be our back-end model and that we're basically an agency, but we've figured out how to scale our back-end with the crowd. What they don't really contemplate is, oh, I've got to actually interact with the crowd myself, right? I need to describe my campaign and set it up the right way, et cetera, so that the crowd really understands what it is that I want. Um, so they kind of have a not quite the right approach to thinking about the crowd. The people that are most successful with crowdsourcing look at that crowd as, at least in our case, for example, their paid performance marketing team. You've got 10 paid search experts that know way more than you're ever going to know, building your marketing for you, getting paid only based on performance. And the more you engage them, the actual more you get out of them. We actually designed a um, crowd mechanic or a game mechanic in our system for the advertiser as well to try to show them how best to use the crowd. And one of those uh, uh, sort of optimization scores that we give them is uh, an engagement score. How engaged are you with your crowd? And the advertisers that are the most engaged with the crowd always have the best results in their campaign. So I would say if there's one weakness of crowdsourcing is that in general, people don't know how to use it, how to interface with it that well. Uh, and this is a, a lot of what, as an industry, we're learning and compare a lot of notes on. I think that's interesting because you mentioned Foursquare much earlier about badges and stuff like that. I think the more you – it seems like you take a, a more different approach. If we just – some people would say if I get a crowd of people together and I put a front end to it that looks nice, the money will come. I think what you're saying really is the con is that no, there's really a lot more work to that. There's ways to find out how to actually leverage the crowd to the best of the advantage of the entity like you are, Trata, in this case, and really finding a way to incentivize not only – the the crowdsource people that are working um, on the campaigns, but also educating the the customer on how to best engage with that crowd. That's right. I mean, a lot of people ask me, "Hey, what do you think is the real proprietary value uh, of Trada at the end of the day? Is it the technology you've built or your relationship with Google, things like that?" Well, all those things are important, but the thing that we are getting to be the best at is we're getting to be the best at that dynamic of incenting the crowd the right way. And that is both carrots, it's sticks, it's leveling, it's helping people find the best work. I mean, if you think of um, an analogy, for example, eBay, if you go back to the very early days of eBay, they didn't have a buy it now button. They didn't have PayPal as an escrowing service. They didn't have a very good search engine. It was very hard to find things. They didn't have stores that people could set up. The, you know, they didn't have seller ratings. There was a, there was a lot of you know, fraud in the early days uh, of eBay. And you know, now we take all that for granted, but we also take for granted the fact that like eBay works as a, worked pretty well as a marketplace. We're going through the same invention as an industry right now. Keep in mind, most crowdsourcing businesses are three years old. You know, at the at the most, a couple outliers like iStock Photo and Innocentive and Topcoder and things like that were very, very young companies. I mean, if you think about where Amazon was at three years into its business, they only sold books. They had no rating system, no ranking. I mean, it was very simplistic. Um, and at the end of the day, the reason that 
you know, I, I think that an Amazon or an eBay keeps you coming back is that they figured out how to store your credit card information and recommend other things to and give you one click shopping. It's not really about the asset that's in the market. It's about the interface with the market that matters. We're big believers in that and spend a huge amount of time constantly playing with that because we think that's our core IP. I'd have to agree. I actually earlier I had to resist myself asking you about the back interface and how you uh, help the the customer interface with the the marketers and be able to figure all these things out. I, I got to imagine that you spent those eighteen months in stealth mode just thinking about this interface and building the software to to build a collaborative environment. What what can you share about that uh, about the software? I guess the Power Strata. Um, so, uh, you know, we're nowhere near done. I mean, I'll, I'll use a, uh, Dennis Crowley quote, right? We're, we're less than 10% finished with this whole game mechanics thing, right? I mean, it was <laughs> one of the most honest quotes I've ever heard from Dennis. Not that I'm saying he's dishonest otherwise. I just thought it was really, you know, um, brave. Authentic. Yeah, authentic. Exactly. Brave of him to say, like, we're at the beginning. We're at the beginning too. Uh, and that's because humans, as I mentioned, are motivated by lots of things and, and not just one thing, right? Um, there's uh, a whole bunch of research, uh, including like, for example, the Bartle test that comes out and says, hey, you know, people are usually motivated by a couple things. Some people are very much about making money and achievement or about being social and about reputation, those kinds of things. So you got to figure out how to like balance those things and cater to a lot of different people in the market. Um, you also have to build just a huge amount of tools and technology um, for people to interface with. A crowd is a community, is a website, is a piece of software, is a marketplace. There's a lot going on here. And, and one of the things about marketplaces that are really important is you need to carefully balance them as you grow. If you have too much supply on one side and demand on the other or vice versa, the market doesn't uh, – it sputters along, right? It's a it's an engine with dirty gas in it. And a lot of what we've been doing is just trying to carefully, you know, white gloves, get enough advertisers on one side and let enough optimizers in and then grow it a little bit more and see what happens. And we're, we're now in the part of the business because we're growing very nonlinearly where the market is getting to a point where it's taking care of itself. But every once in a while we realize, hey, we've got to kind of manage it, manage it again a little bit. And at some point in time, we'll reach critical mass like a like an eBay reaches critical mass of sellers and buyers. But I think, you know, on top of all of the complication of crowd mechanics and paid search interfaces to Google and all the kind of credit card processing and all that kind of gnarly stuff, we also have this very uh, delicate toddler. It's like, a, you know, it's like a drunk person walking down an alley, right? If you ever played that game, they stagger <laughs> to one side and you got to pull them back. And if you pull them back too fast, they go slamming into the other wall. Um, that is a market. The beautiful thing is once the market is built, <clears throat> It runs itself, and the incremental cost of adding new assets to the market is essentially zero, and it's incredibly profitable as a business. But it costs a lot of money to get it right. So I, I got to imagine, uh, having been through 18 months of stealth mode, that you're pretty good with keeping secrets. And we've come to the point where we get to ask a fun question, which is, what's on the near horizon for you or for Trata that uh, no one else knows about that is something you can tell the audience listening to this podcast? Well, I think, um, you know, one of the things that we always suspected is that uh, our crowdsourcing model was not so much for paid search as it was for performance-based advertising. Um, what makes paid search really unique and a good place for us to focus is that people, it's all very numeric experience, right? You you know the target conversion cost you want, you know how much everything uh, costs per click, you know how much you're bidding on keywords. It's a very great data-centric um, a model uh, that you can build on top of. Well, it turns out that there's not that much difference between um, bidding on keywords and things like bidding on what blog my ad should go on, 
or what video my ad should appear in or what um, mobile application I should be involved in. That our model is very consistent if you generalize it to performance-based advertising. So while I don't want to get too specific lest my engineering team come down here and you know, hang me up on my feet. Get upset with you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, we have already developed um, our uh, our uh, crowdsourcing approach for other types of performance-based advertising, and we're deciding how and when this year we're going to enter the market with them. So, And it turns out that we were right, that um, paid search is not that different than other things like display advertising, uh, video advertising, et cetera. So um, we're, we're really, really excited about that. It's nice to see when you build something, the the byproducts that can come from it. Like as you start to realize where it's successful and what it does best, you're like, oh, that applies here, and that applies here, and that applies here as well. So once we get this part right, we can start to maybe open up the doors to to look at other avenues. It's really awesome. So um, I know that you guys run a blog, but where uh, can people follow you at, or where can people learn more about Trida and what when this comes out and what you're doing in and around. Um, this performance-based advertising that you, you've been doing? Sure. Um, we have an awesome social media program run by uh, Elaine Ellis here, and it's uh, trotta.com slash blog, and the three most important Twitter handles are, uh, in no particular order, uh, Elaine Ellis, two L's, at Trotta, and at Neil R1, which is my, uh, my Twitter. And between the three of us, we pretty much cover all the news. Okay, cool. Well, I'll, I'll be sure to add that to the show notes so listeners... If you want to head to 5x5.tv slash Founders Talk and whatever episode number this is, add that after that. You'll arrive at this episode. If you're on that page right now, it's kind of redundant for me to tell you that. So just look down beneath the audio player and you'll see some links. Follow those. But uh, Neil, a real pleasure to speak with you. I, I actually have so many other things I would love to have talked to you about, but I know that uh, we, we do have a time limit on the show. So thanks so much for taking the time you have had uh, to talk with me about Stealth Mode and growing a startup and engaging with entrepreneurs and everything you've talked to talked to us about about crowdsourcing it's really awesome to uh, hear this from you and i'm really excited about what you can do with this company it's really exciting well uh adam thank you so much i really appreciate the uh the time um i always love talking about uh our business it's our baby and we love it so i appreciate it awesome thanks for coming on the show thank you too appreciate it